0: Hello and welcome to the EDH RETCAST. My name is Joey Schultz and I'm joined as always by my fantastic co-hosts. First up, he's the guy who's always gonna be mixing up the eight different arts for the new Teferi from Core 21. That's Matt Morgan.
1: Joey, I want you to know that I absolutely hate it when you ask me, are you listening to me? It's such a rude way to start a conversation.
0: (laughs) Uh, That's that's well done, Matt, Um, but I have to admit, I don't know that I was uh, that I was listening when you told that, that joke. You can't, you can't use my own joke against me. I just used that. It's, it's too fresh. I, I must. I absolutely must. Next, the guy who didn't know that the new Teferi had like eight different arts and is now sweating to try and figure out which one of them he wants in foil. That's Dana Roach.
2: Yeah, I, I had no idea. Um, <laughs> I had family together at my house this weekend for a couple of combined birthday parties, which meant I had three children under the age of five in my house and... I am now ready to be quarantined for the rest of 2021. <laughs> Maybe 2022 and 2023 as well. Just mailing it. Uh, in. I'm 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 good.
0: I'm done. Accurate. Dana, nothing you've ever said in your life has ever resonated more with me than what you just said. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, this is the EDH RecCast. EDH Rec is the best deck building resource on the web for the commander format, compiling data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new commander decks. And here on the EDH RecCast, what we'd like to do is give all that data a little more
1: context. Hey, fellas, what are we talking about this week? This week, we're going to talk about finding all the different types of setup cards and more importantly, finding the payoff cards and how many you should have in your deck.
0: Yeah, we want to take a look at the sort of formula for a deck or sort of a deck building template and really interrogate the ratios between a deck's setup cards and the payoff cards, the you know cards that lob up the, the strategy for the deck and then the ones that spike it down and really make it uh, really, really tick and end those games and make it awesome. We want to take a look at some of those numbers there. But before we get to our main topic, we, of course, have to give an enormous thank you to Josh Quiet and the folks over there at the Command Zone podcast who handle all of the post-production work on the podcast and make it look as spiffy as it does it's awesome work we appreciate them so much thank you guys and of course we want to give an enormous thank you to the sponsors of the show too
2: yeah i would like to thank our sponsors card kingdom and tcg player card kingdom has one of the best most comprehensive buy lists available and tcg player has an almost limitless selection of cards from a countless array of vendors we all use both and by clicking through the links on edh rec you help support both the site and the show
1: We also do want to plug, because I I hear, I can't confirm, but I hear that we are streaming Wednesday (laughs) nights, (laughs) Uh, Apparently, I've heard that somewhere along the grapevine, but uh, it it might be from it might be from from
0: us having uh, plugged (laughs) it like eight or nine or 18 or 19 times per episode,
1: (laughs) several times twitch.tv slash EDH reccast. We are indeed streaming Wednesday nights around seven o'clock Mountain Standard Time. Time zones are weird. All three of us being in different time (laughs) zones, but it is a way for us to get to play games together during this this weird time. But also we get to have some fantastic guests on. We just had tappy toe claws on cosplayer extraordinaire well actually i wasn't sure if it was oko or jace or ryle <laughs> I, I think it was tappy toe claws pretty sure uh, couldn't quite i think tell. it was actually a, it was actually a t-rex it was a t-rex <laughs> s- squawking the whole way along but yes twitch.tv uh. slash edh uh wednesday nights where we'll be streaming every week
0: Awesome stuff. Uh, Yeah, it's been really great. We've had some awesome guests on there. Um, But also, real quick, before we get to the main set, around, uh, excuse me, the main topic, um, around this time, the full set. At the time of recording, the full set of Core 21 is not fully previewed. We don't know all the cards in it just yet. Um, We are really excited to talk about it, though, and I just want to take a quick moment to address that because a lot of folks will probably be talking about it. We won't be able to record that until our next week's show, but oh my goodness, Core Set 21 has me so excited, and I really cannot wait until we get the full preview so that we can start talking about that set. Because, guys, I am blown away by this Core Set, and I just wanted to throw that out there since we can't talk about it just yet on this episode.
1: It it is looking super fantastic fantastic i'm very excited as well the reprints are amazing all the new cards are so great like you can play tribal hondens now with all the new shrines that are coming out (laughs) i could not be more excited it's it's such a great set just all around We, we have said on the stream you could take out the new cards and all the reprints would carry the set and we also have we've said that you could take out all the reprints and all the new cards would carry it and that does not happen very often let alone in a core set
2: yeah. yeah, I think we were really impressed with the corset last year as well, and and it's it's outdone last year's corset. They've just clearly figured out how to do corsets. Yeah,
0: I, there are some uncommons from this set that I'm more excited about than some yeah. Mythic Rares that we got from previous sets and even from like other Commander products. like And that is really, really something. I'm really, really excited for the set, so I can't wait to talk about it. But it can't be this week just yet because we don't know all the cards just yet, but I'm really looking forward to it. Um, there's one more thing that we want to plug as well before we get to our main topic, and that is uh, that if you are interested in becoming a writer for EDHREC, if you're interested in creating articles and magic content on the EDHREC website... Uh, we've got a
1: link that you can visit. Yeah, uh, our team is expanding and our content is growing, which means we need new people to help write for the site. Uh, we're looking for new content creators, more people to write articles. So, if you are interested in joining the EDH Rec roster, you can go to EDHRec.com/apply or email us at social at edhrec.com for more information on how you can join us in writing for the website.
0: Yeah, awesome stuff. We're really looking forward to it. Uh, and now, guys, let's move on to our main topic. We are talking about setup and payoff. So basically, strategies are really never you know, monolithic. A deck doesn't ever do just one thing. There are multiple parts to it. Um, and the Command Zone and Prof from the Tularian Community College have come up with a couple of different deck building templates or formulas in the past that are really good uh, guidelines. Um, so, using Prof's most recent video, which we will provide a link to in the description, it was a really great video, an awesome team effort, and he walks through how to build a deck using EDIA It's really awesome. We highly recommend it. Um, he has a formula in there that is uh, roughly the following breakdown. He recommends about 37 to 38 lands for your deck, about 10 or more ramp sources, 10 or more draw sources, but six to eight single target removal spells and at least five board wipes. And then here's the really elusive category 30 or more synergy cards, things that really synergize with what your deck is going to be up to. And that's that last category that we really want to dive deeper into during this particular episode, because there are kind of different categories within that synergy that we really need to inspect a little bit closer because they often involve a two-step process where you set up what your deck is going to do, and then you have individual cards that will help... uh, I'll pay it off, sort of like in volleyballs. One part of the deck is going to lob it, and then the other one is going to spike it down and help you win the game with that strategy. So that's what we would like to discuss in this episode.
1: See, I would more prefer to discuss alley-oops because I'm more of a basketball person, but I can do a volleyball analogy. <laughs> I, c- I can live with that.
0: Matt, just be proud that I understood any sports I analogy actually, at all. <laughs> that, that is a
2: good point. I, I do appreciate your effort. And, 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 so and so th- Like if this was bowling, it'd be the person who passes you the beer. The uh, well, bartender, uh, very important. Yes, yeah, there we go.
1: Okay. See now,
0: now you've lost me again. Oh man. Guys.
1: Well, let's let's get this anyway. back on the rails then. So so. Let's talk about this first commander here. So the first one we're going to talk about is Gavi Nest Warden.
0: Yeah, let's look at some specific commanders and see what the halves of the deck are looking like. Gavi Nest Warden is our first one here. This is the new Jeskai commander, five mana, two, five human shaman, who allows you to pay zero rather than paying the cycling cost of the first card that you cycle each turn. And whenever you draw your second card each turn, you create a two, two red and white dinosaur cat creature token. So there's some interesting numbers when we started looking at the average deck according to the data compiled by EDHREC, we started looking into it to see how many cards help enable that strategy and also how many turn that strategy into something a little bit more lethal. So when we pulled up some of the average deck information based off of all of that aggregated data for Gavi, we saw that the deck usually contains an average of 44 cards with a cycling ability in a Gavi deck. So really, you know, the, the typical stuff that you would expect, the Raugren Crystal can cycle, the Dismantling Wave can cycle, the new card Neutralize can cycle, all of those types of things. But then the second half is what's kind of interesting. We're counting here specifically the number of cards that take the act of cycling a card or the act of drawing or discarding a card to push Gavi towards a very meaningful victory. Matt, how many of those did we find in the average Gavi deck?
1: So typically, as far as we can tell, the average deck is running about 10 of those payoff cards. Now you. You can look at either Flying Shark and the Shark Rider, uh, Braylon and Shabraz. You can look at Locust God and consider that a payoff card or even your Glinthorn Bucket. Uh, I hear that's a very <laughs> powerful card. Um, Glinthorn Buccaneer, excuse me. Joy had me all confused. Or even one of, my fav- yeah, one of my favorites, Psychosis Crawler. Those are the types of cards that are benefiting from you, either cycling cards, drawing extra cards, discarding card, whatever it is. But those are the cards that you want in play as you're doing some of those cycling abilities and, and churning through your deck.
0: Right, and that's a really interesting ratio, I think. 44 cards that help uh, Gavi cycle through, and then about 10% of the deck is uh, the kind of stuff that will actually make all of those cycling cards lethal. And there's actually one other data point that I wanted to hover on here for a moment, which I found really interesting, because the original pre-con for Gavi had only 31 cards with a cycling ability, um, which is, I think, one of the reasons why I was a little... I don't know, distrusting of Gavi. Um, the experience that I've had playing against that pre-con, it always has felt like she just completely stumbles and she totally runs out of gas. Um, and I think that this is kind of a big reason why the average Gavi player is dramatically increasing the number of cycling cards within the deck to make sure that it never runs out of steam that way and that you've always got something to do, because it's nearly half of the deck can cycle to continue that train going, um, and just having a third of the deck is not quite enough. Uh, but yeah, about nearly half the deck can cycle, and then you've got another 10 cards that help you uh, move things on and this for the record actually isn't even including maybe some other wheel spells that might uh, be in the deck such as windfall effects that also help you draw and discard lots of cards to make those things move Um, but that is a really interesting ratio that we wanted to touch on because that is kind of giving you a good impression of how much Setup you need to make sure that those payoffs are truly lethal, I think.
2: And it's not a number that I don't think you can apply to every deck, or maybe not even to the Gavi deck in particular. It's mm-hmm. very much an art and not a science in terms of how many of those, of those cards that get you to the point where you can get a payoff how many enablers you have in your deck and you mentioned it, joey it didn't feel right when you were playing that gavi deck out of the box and looking at the numbers people have clearly added way more cyclers in till it does feel right for them it's the kind of thing that i think you just have to get reps with the deck to find what the number is the number is clearly higher than it is out of the box, but you, you, it's one of the things that's in my experience, you just got to grind it till you like find what that right comfort level number is. Absolutely. And like you said, it's definitely not going to be the same
0: for every deck. Let's move on to another example here. Also a recent commander. The numbers on this one are a lot different than the numbers we just looked at for Gabby.
2: Yeah, we're looking at Winota, Joiner of Forces, the human warrior from the recent Aquaria set. Uh, whenever a non-human creature you control attacks. Look at the top six cards of your library. You may put a human creature card from among them onto the battlefield, tap and attacking, and it gains indestructible till end of turn. Put the rest of the cards in the bottom of your library in a random order. So you're digging out human creature tokens and putting them into play. Um, it's an interesting deck in that an average of 28 cards in this deck produce non human creature tokens. So, the second half of this is there's an average of 26 humans nobody can flip into to play for free. So, you're generating um, non human creature tokens that enable you to get as many triggers as possible to flip into humans. So, you're trying to get that balance between having cards you can hit based on the trigger and having things that will generate you non human creature tokens that will enable the trigger in the first place.
1: Yeah, and something interesting too is that you're playing on average about nine non-human creatures that do make other non-human tokens uh, that we're talking about here. So stuff like Krenko, Tin Street, Goblin, or Goblin Rabblemaster that make armies of tokens on their own. And then that then fuels to get more triggers from Winota to flip into those creatures. So it's a interesting balance. We talked about that balance on our set review where we weren't quite sure what that ratio was and, and how that deck building challenge would work because then you can also flip you know just a regular 1-1 Goblin token into an Aurelia and get all your combat steps too which is going to get more triggers so it I, is. I think Aurelia is an
0: angel, not a human, so he, it yes. wouldn't be flipped in. But yeah, oh, no, that okay. is really interesting because there's an average of like 35 creatures in the Winota deck, but only 26 are actually humans. So there are substantial, a, a lot more creatures in the deck that are not humans that I wouldn't have expected to see there, to be honest.
2: Well, it, it, the, the non-humans tend to be things that enable you to win with the things you have out, like the Cranko and the Aurelia, because they do something with a combat step that generates more damage. But you have to find that balance because if you have too many of those in the deck, you can't actually get the you know appropriate triggers you want. It's There's a real, real juggling act to find that perfect balance there. And it's interesting to see how many um, cards people are going with, what the actual density of humans is in this, in this deck.
1: Well, and it's right. interesting... That a whole quarter of the deck are are, are creatures that you can flip yeah. into, and being able to dig six cards deep isn't a small number. I'm, I would like to see it pushed up a little bit more than twenty six, but I don't think that's a bad number to have that you're looking to just to start with.
0: Right. It's it's just so interesting compared to the previous commander we just looked at. The shift was, very different. We had over forty, uh, cycling setup cards, and then about ten. Payoff cards. Um, and here we've got uh, numbers that are a lot closer together about 28 cards that can produce tokens, and then 26 humans that those tokens can help you find uh, and play for free. Those numbers are a lot closer together. And I think that really speaks to the deck building constraint that Winota is under, especially because a lot of the cards that produce non human tokens. Are also humans themselves. Cards like Geist Honored Monk, for example, or uh, Lena Selfless Champion, um, humans that produce non-human tokens. So it's funny because these are two different halves of the deck, but they do um, they do sometimes crop up on the same
2: actual cards. The additional thing with Winota, why you want to maintain this density is the more times you generate that trigger and bring creatures out and in, in, in into play, the thinner your deck gets with targets that can actually hit. So. Right the 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 numbers that work uh, you know on turn 4 or 5 when you first attack might not work quite so well on turn 7 or 8 or on or turn 10 or 12 depending on how many times you've done it so this one is really really tricky because you're dealing with ratios that are going to shift quite Severely over the course of the game.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's absolutely one of my fears with winota as well. Yeah. Because there are a lot of other commanders out there that don't have that the same deck building restraint. Uh I'll I'll use uh Zyrus the Writhing Storm as an example here, actually. Zyrus can produce like 21 tokens by casting a single windfall, and that doesn't affect any of the other ratios in its own deck, and it only had to play one card, and it didn't require a huge uh deck building loophole to get there. Um and, and so that's the kind of thing that I look at and I see Winota, and I'm like, ooh, this requires a lot more hoops. And a single board wipe really changes the math on that. Is that, that. That's the kind of thing that makes me a bit more trepidatious about uh, Winota, I guess. Um, I, I, I am still, I know that I had a pretty negative take on Winota in our set review, but I, I still am hoping to be proven wrong um, because I think that, that cheating stuff into play for free is definitely a thing that Joey likes to see, to be honest. So.
1: I mean, it is bannably good in standard and in uh, historic? historic, yeah. Well, it, it, it's too. one of the reasons that Agent of Treachery got banned out of Standard. Granted, there's several decks that are breaking Agent of Treachery, but Winota <laughs> certainly was not helping the things. But yes, Dana, Dana's point is 100%... Um, on point, I should say, um, <laughs> that it is a very finite resource for Winota targets. So you want to make sure that you have some way to actually get targets back in from the graveyard, maybe, um, which is definitely something to keep in mind when building the deck. But mm-hmm. we're going to move on real quick to a commander that I do, but I don't want to talk about. And that is Baral <laughs> Chief of Compliance. Now, Baral is one in a blue for a 1-3 that says instant and sorcery spells you cast cost one less to cast. And whenever a spell or ability you control counters a spell, you may draw a card and if you do discard a card so this obviously is all about counter spells which is going to be the first half of the deck we talk about the counter spells on average a brawl deck is running about 21 counter spells and then that second half is is finding a way to win the game actually just lethal damage so there's typically about six cards that you know reliably can win the game when baral has kind of taken over you have stuff like shark typhoon which is that new big shark nato making all sorts of, of shark tokens metallurgic summonings kind of doing the same thing making a bunch of tokens upon casting spells but also thos oracle because that's a card that people have started to pay attention to lately so it's an interesting balance of how many counter spells you're playing in a deck where the commander only wants to be countering other spells.
0: Now, these numbers are especially interesting to me because, yeah, looking through a Baral deck, you see a whole lot of control in the deck and a lot of the other cards that fulfill the roles of, you know, mana rocks or making sure you can draw cards and keep your hand stocked and stuff like that. But there were very, very, very few Legitimately, this card is intended to make sure I win the game cards in a Brawl deck. And and yeah, like you know, any even Brawl himself can technically attack for lethal damage, but that's a very slow proposition compared to the very obvious win-condition cards like Shark Typhoon and, and stuff like that. Um but yeah, just six cards on average that were specifically intended to help Brawl really take control
1: and make it lethal, that is a very tiny number. Yeah, I would expect actually, as much as I hate to say this. Um, it's not the fun thing to say, but the Baral deck only 21 counterspells actually seems kind of low to me. I do like the types of win conditions that people seem to be playing. Shark Typhoon and Metallurgic Summonings, like we said, um, they reward you for casting a lot of non-creature spells, um, granted you're what you know, you're typically going to be making an army of 33s, three 22s, two maybe some 44s, four but that'll get the job done eventually. I, I think that win conditions, though, in a control deck, and maybe this is just me not being a control player at heart, I want to see more win conditions in any deck, whether it's control, whatever it is. Yeah, I, I get that
0: impulse, but I also feel like I know why it doesn't need as many as some others, especially because mm-hmm. the ability uh, of Baral helps you dig and find yes. more cards. Um you don't need as many if your deck is going to be consistently playing a long game. You're more likely to draw into those cards, especially if your commander helps you dig for them. So you don't need as high of a density of them because once you've established control, just one condition will do the job. So you don't need to you know, pack your deck with a ton of cards that don't help you counter spells and remove your <laughs> opponent's threats like you need to do to control the board. So I, I do totally get it, but it is still a, a low number. Yeah. And that's a good thing to keep in mind when you're playing a controlling deck like that is to make sure you know how many of those win conditions you have, because mm-hmm. it probably isn't very many, which means they're very important, and timing them is even more important,
1: too. Well, yeah, and this kind of comes back to a form of card advantage that we've talked about a couple times in the past. But card velocity, being able to go through your deck and how quickly you can get to specific cards that you need, so, like here, you don't need very many win conditions in a Boral deck, kind of like what you might need with Gavi decks. You have a lot of card velocity, as, as in, you're able to see a lot of different cards each game, which maximizes your chances of seeing any given win condition that you need. I did kind of underestimate this and then found with my Riel deck, for example, um, I don't need that many win conditions, because with Riel's ability of whenever I discard a card the, for the first time in that turn, I then draw that many cards. I see a lot of cards because not only am I discarding cards to loot effects, but I'm drawing even more. So yeah, I do get it. Um, maybe this is just me, you know, needing to experience a Baral deck, which I'm not sure anybody needs to experience a Baral deck. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I do, I do get where you're you're coming from, Joey. And yes, I have experienced that myself. Even
0: yeah, it's it's really interesting stuff there. Let's see what our next sample commander, what those numbers look like. Dana, who's our next one?
2: The next one is Yannette Cryptic Sovereign, the uh, legendary sphinx from Commander 2018. Um, Yannet has 11 or 12 different keywords, but but what's important there is whenever Yannet Cryptic Sovereign attacks, read the top card of your library, and if that card CMC is odd, you might cast it without paying its mana cost. Otherwise, draw a card. So the first half here is top deck manipulation, and on average, we're looking at 16 different cards that set up the top of the deck. Things like Sentai's Divining Top or Halimar Depths, Brainstorm, uh, Cavalier of Gales, um, Amanatu, Soothsaying. Basically anything that lets you stack what you're going to reveal when you get the attack from Amanatu from unit from sorry from Yunet. yeah um the second half here are the 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 odd cards that you're looking to cheat into play so things like Emrakul, the promised end or magister sphinx or void Winn- winnow War or angel of despair things with a high cmc that you're going to get to just play for free by conveniently arranging it so they're on the top of your library every time you you get a swing and how many was that uh, 25 of those cheats versus 16 setup cards now, this
0: one's especially interesting, and this is kind of a, a hard number to, to get because we couldn't obviously include every odd CMC card that shows up in the average Yannette list. Um, you know, we weren't going to count stuff like Drifter, even though that is technically a card that Yannette can cheat into play. But definitely those bigger payoffs, the Angel of is the Eldrazi uh, that Yannette can cheat into play. Um, this one's very interesting because the numbers actually go the opposite way. There's not as
2: much setup as there are the payoff cards that Yannette can cheat in. Well, one of the reasons I would guess for that is these kind of of setup cards don't necessarily stack. So you can hit a situation where you play that Halimar Depths that lets you rearrange the top three cards of your library and your Sensei's Divining Top that does the exact same thing doesn't necessarily work. Those don't work together well. You're doing the same thing right. over again. So if you have yeah. too many of those effects that don't let you scry to the bottom of your library or or like at least Brainstorm does let you put something from your hand on top of your library, you're dealing with things that are redundant and basically don't work.
1: Yeah, you, you don't need a Sensei's Divining Top while you also have a, have a Soothe Saying Out, for example. So yeah, it is true. You only need one of those 16 cards in play to really take effect. And I think just accuracy by volume when it comes to payoff cards like this, like eventually you're going to hit something super crazy to, to pay off. And sometimes those setup cards are part of the payoffs. That's not ideal, but you're still getting something.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting uh, stuff, especially what you've pointed out there, Dana, that those cards don't stack well with each other and that's uh you know a thing that we don't see for example in the winota deck where all of those tokens are actually the more of them that you have definitely the better so that is kind of an interesting thing to to observe here too yes those do all synergize with what the commander is up to which is definitely what we're interested in, in seeing here they all can help with setup but sometimes those categories within the deck also fight against that other the other cards within that same category and that's something that's definitely worth noting so that you can find the, uh, the right number when you're putting in reps with that deck uh, there's one one more here that i want to get to as well because this is a commander that actually has sort of three pieces uh to its setup i think that you guys already know where i'm going with this i just want to talk about reanimation let's talk about the mimeoplasm uh this is my absolute just my, uh, my bay of a commander it is a five mana sultai commander it's a zero zero ooze but it's, ah oh God, it's just so good. This is, oh, it's, it's the best. <laughs> just tell what the commander is, Joey. <laughs> but I just, I'm reveling in its T-Rex arm. Uh, as the Mimeoplasm enters the battlefield, you may exile two creature cards from Graveyards. If you do, it enters the battlefield as a copy of one of those cards with additional plus one counters equal to the power of the other card. And the setup and payoff that we've got in a Mimeoplasm deck is a little bit funky, actually, because it has three steps. Section one, you need cards that will help you fill the yard up, either by discarding or tutoring them directly into your Graveyard, you know, cards like Buried Alive or Life's Finale or Windfall. And the average Mimium Plasm deck. It has about 14 cards in that particular category. Section two, you need some reanimator spells. Obviously, Mimiplasm is a, re- a reanimator effect itself, but then there's also stuff like Animate Dead. Uh, Body Double can also, you know, get you a creature from the graveyard or Living Death, which is my absolute favorite, get you all of those back. There are an average of 13 or so reanimation effects in a Mimiplasm deck. And then section three, you need the creatures that you're going to reanimate, the actual targets. And there are about fifteen. 15 of these in a Mimmiplasm deck. That's stuff like Gengataxias or Terastodon or Mimmiplasms. Particular favorite targets, such as becoming a copy of Scytherix or getting extra additional counters on it equal to the power of that Lord of Extinction in your graveyard. Really awesome stuff. But this is just one other thing that I wanted to uh, linger on here because this is the type of thing that really has a couple of steps to get that payoff. And they all fit within that synergy umbrella, um, but they each definitely have very distinct roles.
2: They have distinct roles and part of the problem with balancing those roles is if you lean too heavily into one category, um, the other ones don't necessarily support it. If you are leaning really heavily into big beater reanimation targets, um, that's gonna then pull away the reanimation spells you have access to, you're gonna have less of those, which means you're gonna have less opportunities to do things with those big creatures in your graveyard. Conversely, (laughs) if you have a ton of reanimation spells, you're gonna probably have less reanimation targets Giving you that opportunity to wind up with the animate dead and the necromancy in hand and nothing in your graveyard, so There's a lot of things to balance here, and they really kind of fight one another if you have the balance wrong Exactly. That's what's so interesting about this
0: category, about seeing what sets up and what pays off, because too many in one category means that your deck doesn't do the thing that it wants to do at all. And I love how even these numbers are. You've got for, uh, 14 cards that help fill the yard, 13 that specifically reanimate cards, and then about 15 targets that you want to reanimate. Those are very even numbers. That's not like a 40 and a 10 or a 20 and a 6. It's very, very even across the board. And that's a really important lesson, I think, for those reanimated players out there like me who like to do really disgusting stuff with their graveyard
2: now the the one pressure relief valve so to speak here for all of this is Mimeoplasm can hit other people's graveyards so if you happen to get not lucky and don't have the you know right things in your yard to hit you might have something you could take from somebody else similarly some of the reanimation spells black has don't rely on hitting your own graveyard either so if you happen to just have the balance wrong or just get unlucky you can reanimate something someone else has so there is a bit of kind of a backup there. You're not hard locked to just being out of luck if your balance is wrong or you just have a you know, some poor draws. That does help with this particular deck, whereas the rest of the ones we've discussed, it's entirely on you. yeah yeah absolutely
0: i just wanted to linger on that one because uh reanimator is the best and i thought the numbers were really cool uh but now we've got a couple of other archetypes we want to look at as well but before we get to that part of the show we have to do one of our favorite segments challenging the stats there's so much data on eda track but we don't always agree with it sometimes we think that cards are seeing too much play and sometimes they're seeing too little play so what we like to do is challenge those statistics matt how about for this week you start us off what is
1: your challenge well, my challenge comes to us courtesy of Nick Ross, one of the listeners, sent us an email with an interesting challenge of stats that I really actually appreciated. So, Myriad Landscape is a card we're going to talk about today. Uh, it is just a land, and there's a battlefield tapped, and you can tap it to add a colorless mana to your mana pool. Or you can pay two and tap it and sacrifice it to search your library for up to two basic land cards that share a land type and put them on the battlefield. Well... What Nick is challenging here specifically is in colorless decks. So currently, Myriad Landscape is being played in 17% of Ulamog, the Ceaseless Hunger decks, and 30% of Emrakul, the Promised End decks. The problem is that in those colorless decks, you can't really activate Myriad Landscape because wastes don't share a land type, there is no land type to those, it's not a forest or a plains or anything like that, it's just a basic land. So what Myriad Landscape basically becomes is an enter the battlefield tapped basic land that doesn't do anything. And I think that number in Ulamog Ceaseless Hunger decks, in those Emmercool Promised End decks, is much much too high because it basically is a worse waste in all those decks. Uh, Blasted Landscape is a substitute I think people should be playing that's only showing up in 37% of all colorless decks right now, which is just a enter the battlefield, you can tap it for a colorless or you can cycle it away. Those are the types of cards that I really like instead of Myriad Landscape because in a colorless deck, you can't ever get any lands out of your deck with it, and it's just strictly a better, or a worse, I should say, waste in those colorless decks. So good call, Nick Ross. You're not quite Rick Ross, but you're pretty dang close with this pick.
0: That is an absolutely great... That is not the kind of thing that I would have noticed even because it's just like, this gets me two of the basic lands, right? That's what Myriad Landscape does. That's such an intuitive thing to do. But they don't have basic land types, so it can't get those. Oh, man, yeah, that means it's definitely
2: played too much. Yes. Um, All right, Dana, how about you? I also have a a challenge this week sent to us by a listener. uh, LexB10823 on Twitter. Um, Praetor's Grasp... And that's a, a sorcery spell for one and two black. Search target opponent's library for a card and exile it face down. Then that player shuffles his or her library. You may look at and play that card as long as it remains exiled. Uh, it's not a card that sees a ton of play in, in EDH, but it's being suggested to be played more in King Makar the Gold Cursed decks. where right now it's in less than 1% of decks. King Makar, when he attacks... Um, Excuse me, whenever he becomes untapped, you may exile a creature, and if you do, you put a colorless artifact token named gold onto the battlefield. So King Makar makes gold tokens that can be sacrificed to add a mana of any color to your mana pool. That's irrelevant here because Praetor's Grasp doesn't let you pay mana of any color to cast the spells you get with it. Mm. King Makar, however, makes tokens that let you cast those spells, And you can go get spells that do things that black doesn't have access to. You can't destroy artifacts in black for the most part. You can't destroy enchantments. So Praetor's Grasp winds up kind of being a wild card where if you absolutely need to deal with that doubling season or that wound reflection or something that's going to end the game if you don't get rid of it, you can use Praetor's Grasp to go get that naturalize and actually be able to cast it with green mana because of the gold tokens. That's really clever. I really like that. Yeah. And uh, to to honor this, I've actually also got a challenge to tats pick
0: that was provided by a listener. So guys, we were on a wavelength. We absolutely were. Um, And our listeners are providing some really cool suggestions. This one comes to us from Mia Hammer via email. this is a really this one took me a second to, to realize but I really like her train of thought here uh, so Mia says now I'm all for janky cards finding homes but I feel like Triska doesn't have a lot of synergy with Selenia so Selenia Dark Angel is an Orzhov commander 5 mana 3 through with flying who lets you pay 2 life f- uh, to return her to your hand but the way that that colon is placed the way that you can activate Selenia's ability you can actually pay a bunch of life before that ability resolves so she lets you manipulate your life total really 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 efficiently so you can go all the way down to two or one life and then use some effects like axis of mortality for instance to swap that low life total with someone else it's a really clever strategy but the card that we're looking at here is triska and that is the four mana enchantment that at the beginning of your upkeep you choose one either everyone gains a life or loses a life and then anyone who has exactly 13 life loses the game the idea is probably to use those life swap effects to use Selenia to set your life total to 13 and then change it over to someone else so that Triskaidekaphobia will, you know, make them lose the game. But what Mia tells us is... Selenia's only interaction with Trisk by itself is sort of keeping yourself from losing. And in my book, not losing to your own wincon is kind of a stretch on what the term synergy encompasses. You still need other effects like Axis Immortality or Soul Conduit to actually make Selenia's ability kill your opponents. But at that point, you might as well just go with the plan of setting your own life total to 1 or 2 and then switching it over. Because that's basically lethal anyway. I was, uh, I, I was actually pretty into this pick. It does seem like Triskaidekaphobia. you could just, instead of setting to 13 and giving your life total away, you could just set it to one and then they're basically dead anyway, right? What do you guys think?
1: Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, Triskaidekaphobia is a card that requires a lot of work to get just right. Yes. Um, if that is your jam, God bless. Um, <laughs> I'm, I, I'm not going to tell you how to do your business, but... Uh, I certainly am not up to that type of challenge anyways, so I, it's going to be in 0% of Matt Morgan decks per, for perpetuity.
2: Yeah, and it's also the kind of card that someone can manipulate themselves to get out of it fairly easily. There's enough things that allow you to pay life at will. Um, I, I, I don't love it either, necessarily, so I'm kind of with Matt there.
0: Yeah. Uh, with Matt, with Dana, with Mia, this is, I listeners providing awesome challenges that's to to pick. Yeah. yeah. that's uh, This is why I'm, it's my favorite part of the show. But let's move back into that main topic, because uh, we don't want to just look at specific commanders. We actually kind of want to zoom out a little bit and compare some commanders within certain archetypes. We were just talking about Selenia, who was sort of a black-white life gain commander. Let's look at the life gain strategy and compare two commanders from within that strategy and see what their setup ratios and their payoff ratios are like from across those two different ones. Matt, do you mind starting us off.
1: So the first one we're going to talk about in this life gain category of ours is going to be Loro Ageless Ascetic. Uh, so Aloro is three in Esper colors, so a white, a blue, and a black for a four or five legendary giant soldier. Uh, at the beginning of your upkeep, you gain two life. And whenever you gain life, you may pay one, and if you do, uh, you draw a card, each opponent loses a life. But then all, the important part is, at the beginning of your upkeep, if Loro is in the command zone, you then gain two life. Uh, so it's all about gaining life sitting there elongating the game making sure you get all sorts of value from the preeminence because it wasn't quite eminence uh when alora was printed but it has that ability out of the command zone so on average the the life gainers or different cards that are going to gain you life in an aloro deck they're playing about 16 of those cards whether it's something like authority of the consoles to gain you life or wall of reverence to to gain big bumps or even combo Console Allocation, that taxes everybody and makes sure you're gaining a steady stream of life throughout the game. So it might be a little low there, but uh, the second half of this deck that we're gonna be talking about is weaponizing that life gain. How are you going to use the, the life that you have accrued over the course of the game into actually winning? So on average, there are 13 of these cards in an Aloro deck, whether it's Aetherflux Reservoir, where you can pay 50 life and hit somebody for 50 life, uh, that's quite the ability there, but also cards like Felidar Sovereign that just outright win you the game. Um, the typical deck also ends up playing stuff like Exquisite Blood and the Sanguine Bond combo, where if you gain one life, you everybody else loses a life, and it just turns into this Ever or never-ending loop of gaining life and everybody else losing life. Um, this also includes different uh, cards that can kind of supplement that, like uh, Viscopa or Defiant Bloodlord, that also fill in those certain roles. What do you guys think about the ratios here of of 16 life gain cards and then 13 life gain payoff cards?
2: It's so low. That's my first thought. These are really low numbers. It's low, but I think part of this is because. Oloro doesn't necessarily signpost to you that that's how you're going to win is with life gain. So I think there's probably a higher amount of people than you usually see with these kind of archetypal decks who, are, who aren't who are leaning into life gain as their win condition. I think that's probably mucking with their stats a little bit. I suppose, but also
0: the fact that Oloro is a life gainer allows it to run fewer of the cards that let you gain life and that's why we wanted to compare it to another life gain commander so also in the same archetype of life gain karlov of the ghost council this is a really cool commander He is very cheap just two mana for a two two whenever you gain life he gets two plus one counters and you can pay a white and a black and remove six of those counters from karlov to exile a creature his numbers in those two different categories of how many cards in the deck gain you life and how many cards actually help you you know Turn that life gain into something lethal. They're very different from Oloro. He uh Karlov has thirty five life gain outlets, and this includes some uh, the some of the same cards that we mentioned for Oloro, but also stuff like Soul's Warden and Soul's Attendant, which gains you life uh, whenever creatures enter the battlefield. Sunscorch Regent, which gains you life when other players cast spells. There are thirty five of those, and then the second half of weaponizing the life gain. There are only nine cards that specifically make the life gain lethal. Um, a lot of the same ones, like Felidar Sovereign, the same stuff that Oloro is running, but the of course also including karlov himself because he can deal lethal commander damage if you've gained a whole bunch of life he gets really really big this is my stepdad's deck it crushes me all the time it's really really powerful it's awesome but like those numbers are just totally totally different than what we saw for Oluro. Oluro had very low but pretty even uh and then karlov has so many cards that help with the set off and a lot fewer that are the payoff
1: well, and, and I think that's kind of due to the nature of the commanders too, where Aloro, even in the command zone, is gaining you life, which takes a lot of the pressure off needing other cards in your deck to gain you the life. Whereas Karlov has 35 life gain cards, Aloro doesn't need that many because no matter where Aloro is, you're gaining life every turn. So that puts the, the precipice on, or excuse me, the importance on putting more payoff cards into the Aloro deck, whereas Karlov is that payoff where uh, Aloro was the life gain, so the role of the Commanders is swapped a little bit. So I think that's why their, their ratios might be leaning the way they are. Plus, Alora, like we said about Baral, it's a control deck. You're, you're elongating the game. You're going to see cards, plus there's blue in there, which means you know you're going to be drawing a decent amount of cards. So I think that's why Alora, you say it's low playing 13 payoff cards, but chances are they're going to be able to find the right one at the right time, just knowing the type of deck that Aloro is and playing blue in there, whereas Karlov, Karlov's such a low cost, you can kind of play him, gain a little bit of your life and then use his ability probably pretty quickly after you play him
0: yeah absolutely it's just really important to to see those different numbers i think because it tells you how much the commander plays such a huge role in how much attention you have to give to each of those different parts of your deck which section within that synergy umbrella that you need to pay the most attention to based off of whether your commander is an enabler or your commander is a payoff Um, and that's just really really fascinating and we've got a couple of other examples too let's move on to some examples
1: within the wheel strategy in edh so the wheels, the first commander we're going to talk about here is Zyrus the Writhing Storm. It's one of the new commanders from Commander 2020. Uh, it is the Teamer Commander. Uh, it's two and a green, blue, and a red for a 3-5 Snake Leviathan with flying. Uh, whenever an opponent draws a card, except for the first card they would draw in each of their draw steps, they create a, or you, excuse me, you create a 1-1 one, one Green Snake Creature token. And then whenever Zyrus the Writhing Storm deals combat damage to a player, you and that player draw that many cards. So, Zyrus hits for three, you both draw three. Zyrus hits for 10, you both draw 10, and then you're making that many one ones all the way along. Uh, So, the two halves of the deck here are gonna be 15 wheel cards, that is, cards like Windfall, uh, Reforge the Soul, stuff that's going to be discarding a lot of cards and then drawing that many or more. And then you're gonna have 10 Howling Mine type of effects. So that is cards like Howling Mine or Font of Mythos where you draw extra cards every draw step. So on average, you're looking at about 25 cards that are gonna be forcing people to be drawing more cards. So that puts us then into the payoff cards. What are those payoff cards? So there's about 13 payoff cards in the average Zyrus deck, whether that's Locust God, yet again, stuff like Shared Animosity, which makes all your 1-1 snakes very, very powerful in combat, or even Perforous and Impact Tremors, which every time one of those creature tokens comes in the battlefield, you're doming the entire table. Uh, So it's interesting to see that little navigation between the 25 drawing cards and helping opponents draw cards to only 13 payoff cards for those creature tokens being created. What do you guys think about these ratios right here? I
0: expected this to have uh, a lot fewer payoffs, I think, because Zyrus plays such a huge role, Um, but then also because a wheel deck, like you mentioned, the card velocity, Matt, they go through so many cards that it would make sense to me uh, that you will find one of those things eventually. But in thinking about that, it actually is probably a little bit foolish because this deck... Probably doesn't want to cast a whole lot of the wheel spells until it actually gets one of those payoffs in play. Uh, So getting a high density of them would be really necessary because otherwise the setup cards just benefit your opponent way too much and you don't want to cast them.
1: Yeah, I know Dana is not a big fan of Wheel of Fortune type effects. So yeah, helping your opponents and not really doing anything yourself, you probably do want to make sure you have something in place before you start firing off all those wheel spells.
2: Well, and Joey, you just talked about how you probably don't want to wheel unless you have one of the payoffs in hand, which requires more of them. That makes an interesting comparison to our other wheel commander here, which is Nekizar the Mind Raiser. Um Nekizar is a zombie wizard. At the beginning of each player's draw step, that player draws an additional card. And whenever an opponent draws a card, Nekizar the Mind Raiser, deals one damage to that player. So unlike the, the Zyra's Thriving Storm we just talked about, the, the Punisher here is actually on the commander, so you don't necessarily need to wait until you have the payoff card out to start wheeling. And you see it in the stats here. There are 31 Force Draw spells here, most of the same ones that Zyrus has, plus additional ones in black, like Whispering Madness. And then you only have 16 Punishers. I shouldn't say 16. That's still a decent amount, but there are 16 Punishers here because the Punisher is right there on the commander when you cast it.
0: Yeah, and those are, of course, the things like uh, Migram or Spiteful Visions, uh, Underworld Dreams, really punishing um, people for drawing cards. Both of these are slightly bigger than the numbers we just looked at for Zyrus. Zyrus had 25 uh, enablers and 13 uh, lethal payoffs, and then Nikazar had... uh, A little bit more, 31 of those forcing to draw, and then slightly more, at 16 of the the punishing effects. Um, Basically, though, I think that this just sort of signals that the wheel strategy is not quite as, I don't know, since both of those commanders are both kind of payoffs, um, or can both be, uh, you know, making those wheel effects lethal, it makes sense that their strategies are going to be a bit more consistent. So a wheel strategy, I think you can more uh, reliably count on these numbers to be a good indication of where you want your own numbers to be for your own deck.
1: I, I think there is something to be said too for Zyrus is fairly new, only having coming out in the past few months, whereas Necosar has been out for a very long time. So Necrusar decks are pretty well fleshed out. Uh, the the data is, is pretty concrete, whereas Zyrus, people are still kind of playing around with it a little bit. So I don't know if these numbers are the same as what they would be. You know, in a year or so, I think there there might be some new cards that are going to kind of get fleshed out, and just the nature of having black in the deck versus green uh, to combine with the, the blue and the red—that's another interesting thing too, and and how well you can draw cards based off of what colors you're playing as part of the commander identity within the same theme.
2: Yeah. Well, not, not only is Zyrus new, it's it's a card that was released in an environment where it's been difficult to find games to play just because of many places under quarantine and social distancing rules etc so there's probably less games than you normally would see from this deck getting played leading to them probably being slightly less tuned than you would even normally see for a deck that's new anyway yeah
1: plus black has the access to tutors so i'm not really sure i think yeah that throws it off too less you could play less punisher effects in Nekusar because you can just tutor for the exact one that you want at any given time. That's probably not irrelevant as well.
0: Oh, yeah, that's a, a- thing that I hadn't quite thought of, but that's certainly a a way that you could play it. You don't need as many if you can find them pretty easily. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Uh, But it's just interesting to see that those numbers are a bit more consistent compared to the wheel strategy, where those two command, uh, excuse me, compared to the life gain strategy, uh, where those commanders definitely fulfilled different uh, types of roles. So again, just going back to how these commanders really do affect the numbers um, and the types of cards that you want supporting the deck. And uh, let's cap it off with one final example. Let's talk about a little bit of landfall and see what the numbers within the deck look like for two different
1: landfall commanders. Well, you said landfall, so I'm gonna chime in, of course. Uh, (laughs) Omnath Locus of Rage, one of my favorite decks, probably my oldest living deck, actually. Uh, I'm gonna throw this into the ring. So three red, red, green, green, for a five, five legendary elemental. It has landfall ability. Whenever a land enters the battlefield under your control, you create a five, five elemental creature token, which is awesome, but also has the ability of whenever Omnath Locus of Rage or another elemental you control dies, uh, Omnath deals three damage to any target. That is also an awesome ability. So obviously the first half of this deck is going to be ramp cards. You want as many lands on the battlefield and then some more lands, because obviously once you get Omnath into play, you don't want the party to stop, do you? So 30 (laughs) average ramp cards, that's going to be cards like Boundless Realms, Perilous Forays, but then also some extra land type of effects, Uh, Exploration, Burgeoning, those are also very good ones. And then a few even Graveyard specific land ramp cards like Ramanap Excavator. So if we count fetch lands, this number does go up to 37 as far as getting extra triggers, but typically about 30 is what we would consider the traditional land ramp. So the second half of the deck is going to be landfall payoff cards. So cards that benefit from getting more lands into the battlefields, kind of like Omnath. So on average, you're seeing about 13 payoff cards in Omnath Locus of Rage decks, whether this is Joey's favorite elemental ever, uh, Titania, the mono green oh. Titania that makes all sorts of creature tokens, in addition to the tokens you're already getting, or even- the, quite the haymaker too, War Storm Surge, that further benefits you from getting more of those Omnath tokens into play. Uh, four of the, these kind of payoff cards aren't really win conditions necessarily. Uh, there are things like Tireless Tracker that benefit or Lotus Cobra. So there are a few that don't quite get there as far as winning you the game, but they are key to the strategy. But 13 is the number that we consider the, the payoff cards for having those landfall triggers coming on.
2: Well, yeah. and, and we talked earlier about um, the Yannet deck where the, the top deck manipulation tended to not stack, so you didn't want too many of those. Well, this is the opposite situation here where ramp is obviously good early in the game to get you ahead from, with other people. But then after that point, ramp is just what enables your deck to do what it's doing. So you can go really, really deep on things that ramp you and lands in this deck because it's always, always good at every point in the game, no matter how many of those you have access to. Yep. I will say there is a bit of an issue, sort of like we saw with Winota,
0: though, where this does eat in a little bit to the ratios left within the deck. I'm pretty sure that every Landfall player out there has had the experience where you cast some Skyshroud Claim and you realize you're out of forests in the deck for you mm-hmm. to go and fetch, oh, um, yeah. which is probably... That, that makes the, the Graveyard Synergies, the Crucible of World effects, uh, so much more important for decks like that to make sure that you can still get Landfall drops um, even after you run out of things in the deck. But that is just kind of funny, too, to see that, Occasionally, that does mess with the numbers a little bit. So, play more basics, people.
1: Well, I'll say this, Joey. That's my line, Joey.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I have a Mina and Den deck that started off as kind of a landfall deck. And over the years, I've pushed it more into a lands matter deck, something that cares about having multiple lands in play, having an amount of lands versus landfall triggers just for that reason because I hit enough points where I ran out of lands I could go get to get the landfall triggers and the balance became really difficult to keep up with. So I chose to deal with it by not dealing with it and just kind of removing <laughs> most of the landfall stuff and going with <laughs> a lands matters theme instead.
1: Yeah, well, exactly. there, there is nothing. Yeah, there is nothing worse than playing a perilous forays and getting all your basics into play. And then you yeah. draw a rampant growth. You're like, well, Well, poop. Well, shoot.
0: Well, and that's just it. Dana, you mentioned that the ratios, the strategy, it had to shift a bit when you had a different type of landfall commander. So, I'll compare uh, the numbers that we just saw for Omnath to a favorite, an old favorite of mine was uh, Lord Windgrace. This was the Jund Planeswalker commander. 5 mana, 5 loyalty. You can add 2 loyalty to discard a card and draw a card, and you draw 2 if you discarded a land. It can also minus 3 to return lands from your graveyard to the battlefield, and it has a minus 11 ultimate ability to destroy 6 permanents and then create cat tokens in their place, which is really really cool um the numbers are a bit different here the ramp effects we've got sort of near the same. It's about 27 cards that help you with extra land drops, so you know, all those ramp cards, um, Harrow and Skyshroud Claims and all of those, but then also the extra land drop cards like Oracle of Moldiah, all the classics basically. Um, but then the second half, we have a very increased number of cards that make those landfall into something lethal landfall because you got 19 of them. This is stuff like Omnath, who's uh, showing up in the average deck, or cards like Field of the Dead can also get lethal if you have a lot of lands. That's a whole lot of zombies retreat to Hagra is another one I really enjoyed when I was playing Lord Wind because that drains people whenever you get landfall effects you've got 19 of those cards that make your lands lethal which is a bit more than Omnath because Omnath himself fulfills that role so well so he doesn't need as many of them
1: Yep, it's kind of like the ratios we talked about between Oloro and Karlov, where once the payoff is stapled onto your commander, that takes a little bit of the need to put those into the 99. Also probably why Omnath Locus of Rage shows up in the 99 of Lord Windgrace decks, because it is such a good payoff card. So just shifting it to the command zone is why you can pay more cards that just feed into the strategy versus trying to fill it with the payoff cards.
0: All right, guys. So after looking at all of these individual commanders or comparing and contrasting some commanders within certain strategies, what are your final thoughts on your deck's ratio within that synergy umbrella? Uh, You know, how many cards you feel a deck needs to set up the strategy, how many it needs for payoffs? What are some
2: overall observations from all the stuff that we looked at today? Um, You know, early on you talked about ratios, you want this many lands roughly and this many removal spells and this many draw spells. And I think more or less that's mostly true in most decks. You are going to be tweaking it based on, you know, flavoring to taste, so to speak. But you are gonna want those kind of spells and decks. I think this is much more fluid based on what your commander is doing. I, I just can't generically give you a breakdown that's gonna more or less work for you with slight tweaks unless I know what commander you're talking about. So you just have to look at your commander and maybe you can look at a place like EDH rec for guidelines about what that number breakdown should be, but it's going to be pretty significantly different from commander to commander to commander You just have to kind of figure it out. (laughs) (laughs)
0: well yeah no like that's also i'm also very hesitant about the idea of deck building templates because they are a great way to get someone started but if you cling to them too much then you might actually miss the points where deviating from those is going to help you out quite a lot Um, because as we saw the role that the commander plays within the deck has a big impact on how often people are playing cards that help that commander do its thing and help that commander make the strategy lethal very different parts of the deck and paying attention to not just the umbrella of synergy, but also the different uh, you know, components within that umbrella is also really important to make sure that the deck runs smoothly and that you don't ever run out of gas or that you don't wind up with too many win conditions and then they're all fighting for space because that's actually kind of another thing. Too many win con cards can mean, like you don't want to mm-hmm. devote too many of them onto the board. I don't yeah. want to play a Rampaging Baelos and an Omnath and a retreat to Hagra, necessarily. That seems like a little bit of overkill. If someone plays a board wipe, all of my win conditions went out the window, so maybe having fewer of them, and that's something that we saw when we looked at all of those. I think Yannette was the only exception, but most of the commanders that we talked about had significantly more setup cards than they had payoff cards.
2: I also think that the last um, important factor here, Joey, talking about hesitant to give someone a template, the big X factor that we oftentimes don't talk about is personal play style as well, um, how one person pilots a deck is going to make a difference with what those balances are compared to somebody else as well. And th- that's nothing we can even comment on. Like, I have no idea what what a- another party is going to do that's different from what I do. I don't even know what I'm going to do sometimes, like what my <laughs> own personal play style is going to be. I certainly can't strategize for what
1: yours is going to be. Oh, man. Uh... I, and I do I do agree that having a template is a very, very good place to start because everybody has to start. And commander, honestly, can be very overwhelming for people. So I, I understand the need to give somebody a, a square one. Here's the, the very, very basics. Uh, but then knowing kind of once you get comfortable where to take any given commander and then kind of take that personal understanding to the next level. Um, and one of those things for me, at least, is understanding kind of what is enabling your payoff cards. Is it pure card draw, is it wheels, is it cycling? That usually means you're going to be able to see a lot more cards in a given game, and so just those types of decks are going to need less payoff cards than something that relies on pure card quality versus drawing a bunch of cards every game. So. Omnath, you're probably going to need a decent amount of win conditions in there or Lord Windgrace like we saw compared to the cycling decks, compared to the wheel decks because those those blue decks, honestly, uh, they're going to be seeing so many more cards just by virtue of drawing more cards over the typical game. Now, green has gotten very, very powerful lately. That might change here soon, who knows? But wheel decks, like we said, you probably don't need as many payoff cards compared to a Lord Windgrace deck just due to the nature of that. And that's just one thing that you'll start to pick on As you know, you start getting more familiar with different types of commanders
0: yeah absolutely it's not just the role that your commander plays but also the type of strategy that you're playing like you mentioned with the card velocity it does mean that maybe you can afford to run fewer um so yeah and i think also like just being flexible with your template playing around with them because honestly doing it wrong i guess quote unquote um you know playing with those ratios and making them incorrect and then playing a game and seeing you know all, all these ratios uh from the template are completely different doing it wrong just to see how important those things are to reinforce force that lesson for yourself, I'll admit that's something that I do occasionally just to remind myself, yeah, no, these, these are really important. I do need to make sure that I run this much ramp. I do need to make sure that I have a good enough density of enablers to make sure that the deck does its thing. Because um, that can just make sure that you remember those those good habits and go forward and and remember uh, their, their value, basically. Um, but yeah, it's been really fascinating to look at the different ways that decks will set up their strategies and then pay them off in, in different fashions. And looking at the numbers there, I think it was a really cool lesson to be able to look at those and make sure that your criticism exercising or or at least engaging critically with the ways that commanders will do the thing because there tend to be multiple steps to it and it's never one thing it's often several different things that you got to pay attention to and making sure that you know their ratios that you know their numbers can really help you get more wins in those games Uh, but with that i think what we ought to do is call this episode to a close thank you guys so much for joining me and if our listeners would like to get
1: in touch with us where can they find you all matt So you can find me on the Twitters at Mathemus55. That's M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-5-5. And don't forget, I hear on Wednesday nights, we are streaming games, twitch.tv slash EDH reccast. All the great guests, all the great games, and just make sure you tune in. Awesome. And Dana. You can find me at
2: my house hiding from small children. (laughs) And you can find me on the Twitter birds at Dana Roach and hear me a couple of times a week on my other podcast, CMDR Central. And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter. Uh, you can find the cast at EDH Retcast
0: on Facebook and on Twitter. And if you have a question or an insight to EDHX data or like the challenges stat segment that we did on this episode, any fun challenges that you have, you can email us at EDH at gmail.com. Our thanks again to Josh Lequai and the whole team at the Command Zone for handling all of the awesome post-production work on the podcast. And of course, we have to give a huge thank you to our sponsors, CardKingdom.com and TCG Player. You can find them using the price info links on EDHREC or by visiting CardKingdom.com slash EDHREC, and that shows your support for the show. Don't forget, if you are interested in becoming a writer for EDHREC, you can submit your pitch at EDHREC.com slash apply, or you can email us at social at EDHREC.com. And finally, listeners What do you think about the ratio between a deck's setup cards and their payoffs? We would love to hear your thoughts on the subject, too. We'll be back at you next week with more data and insights. But until then, remember, EDH, wreck your deck before you wreck your deck.